Kyle Sondland and Herbert Konings are founding partners of Security Token Group. All opinions expressed by them or guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not represent the views of Security Token Group or its subsidiaries. You should not take any opinion expressed on the show as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow any investment strategy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Security Token Show, episode 24. This is officially our last one of 2019. My name is Kyle Sondland, and I'm joined with my co-host, Herwig Konings. Hello, everyone. This is Herwig Konings, and today we'll be covering the topic of accredited investors, specifically uh, some big news to that investor class coming out. We'll also cover who they are, what they are, and why it's important to security tokens We'll tell you all that and more in today's episode, but before we do, we always like to kick off the show with what we call the companies of the week, the companies that we feel are doing the biggest and best things that week to move the industry forward. Kyle, I'd love to hear who your choice was. Yeah, well, Herwig, this week, my company of the week is Sotheby's International Realty. And so Sotheby's International Realty, they snuck in a huge announcement here right before the end of the year, stating that they've actually signed a cooperation agreement partnership with the United Kingdom-based issuance platform Smartlands to collaborate, quote, in a series of experimental projects in the field of tokenization of luxury real estate. And so the pilot program with Smartlands is going to be regarding a newly built duplex apartment in Lille Square near the famous Hyde Park in London that's managed by the UK Sotheby's. And this property is actually just getting set to go live. It's, it's just set to be finished, I think, just in Q1 2020. So they're in the final stages of launching this project. And Robin Pattinson, the joint chairman and CEO of UK Sotheby's International Realty, added, quote, our customers' needs evolve with the advent of technology. And in the meantime, the property industry is also going through a digital transformation. Collaboration with Smartlands will help us explore how innovative tech can help us add value to our proposition. With this approach, the benefits for international sellers and buyers are immense. Smartlands is transforming the value exchange on a global level, creating a wide array of opportunities for private high net worth individuals the world over by allowing them to find each other easily, create offers, issue equity, diversify their portfolios, and grow their wealth without ever having to lift their fingers off of their computer, keyboard, or mobile device. It also specifically includes the the first property that Smartland successfully tokenized and sold, which was a a UK student housing project. And so they, they saw what Smartland was able to do with that student housing project are now looking to do it for one of their uh, for Sotheby's own um, property that they've got this duplex and on top of that the Sotheby's International Realty Network has a huge worldwide reach they've got over a thousand offices across 72 countries with over 3 million unique visitors to their platform per month as well as a global sales volume of 114 billion in 2018 so this is a huge win for Smartlands, who continues their all-star 2019. But it also says a lot about the direction of one of the largest real estate property management and sales firms in Sotheby's. I mean, Robert, Robin Patton, Patterson excuse me, seems to be very conscious of this growing importance to stay relevant in the changing technological times. And they fully seem to acknowledge the benefits of security tokens for their clients. It's, it's really, really exciting. 
And, and it's a move that we can hope to, that we'll see go forward very quickly as Smartland seem to waste no time with their first property. So with this one, we should expect a similar level of speed. And on top of that, I mean, we've got a lot more properties through Sotheby's. So if they can successfully sell this thing out and show some real benefit, Herway gets very, very exciting. And for that reason, they're my company of the week. I completely find that uh, a worthy choice. Uh, I completely agree. I think, you know, in this case, if Sotheby's able to make this work, there's no doubt that they'll expand it across their entire platform. And their platform is huge. It also includes a lot of auction uh, houses for art and other luxury items that certainly are also good targets, I think, for tokenization. Mm -hmm. But of course, real estate is that that proof that everybody's been after, specifically here in the UK. I think that's a strong sign. We, we knew a little while back T-Zero had announced that they will be tokenizing a portion of the River Plaza, another marquee asset in the, in the UK. So the, there's proof in the pudding that there's going to be demand for this, I think, and Sotheby's is helping lead the charge. And of course, a shout out to SmartLens for being the issuance platform of choice by that company. So both both a, a really a, a shout out, but I think Sotheby's specifically having such a large global brand and name and reach, as you pointed out, is yet again major validation that major, major... Uh, both real estate groups as well as simply asset managers and the like are looking at tokenization and that is the future in 2020. Absolutely. Yeah, I really like this quote. I, I had to include it. It was a little bit long there, but, but it's exciting because it seems like Robin and his team really have successfully understood the excitement here of the benefits of security tokens and and in every different way, right? The, the mobile and computer accessibility for investors, the, the transfer of ownership, all of these pieces, they seem to understand and they want to be technologically focused. Well, you know, that's, that's such a, a, a selling line, right? Think about that. To grow their wealth without ever having to lift their fingers off the computer keyboard or mobile device. That sounds just simply awesome to, to anybody who you say that to. And it's, of course, the vision that they see, that we all see. I'm sure that everybody listening sees. And it's exciting just to, to see validation happen across the board. Great company of the week choice. I'd love to tell you mine, Kyle. I, would, I cannot wait. In this case, uh, I'm actually going to award my company of the week to Ravencoin. Now, for those of you who don't know Ravencoin, Ravencoin is an open source protocol and has been touting around security tokens for some time, but nothing major really had happened yet until a recent announcement from one of their lead developers, Tron Black, who on Medium announced that they have essentially figured out and gotten through all the hurdles to the path of what they call you know, a security token roadmap. And specifically, Tron says he's been working on this for over two years and that they've highlighted nine specific key challenges in, or, in or, order to actually create a legal open source framework that people can use to issue security tokens on Ravencoin. So the first one, I'm going to go through all nine, was restricting assets, of course. This essentially means that in order for you to issue a token, you need to be able to program in rules, specifically the rules that you know dictate the securities laws in whatever region you're in. Specifically, they're focused on the U.S., uh, and in this case, of course, you need that capability along with the second capability of tagging. So in this case, they're talking about tagging wallets uh, to be able to say, okay, this person has been accredited, they followed compliance with KYC or other specific rules that an issuer may want to set in. The third is, of course, 
the famous KYC AML. In this case, Ravencoin has decided to partner up with a, a company, a KYC company called Finclusive. And as a, their partner, they will be the one doing the KYC AML and an OFEC check and storing that data. And they've been specifically qualified by Ravencoin with the special private keys to send these KYC approval tags when they're used on the, the platform. So this also ensures some, some data security, as well as for the fact that you have sort of a third-party oracle able to distinguish a tag regarding KYC. You, of course, also need to be able to freeze addresses. In this case, you could have a bad actor or a special situation where you may need to freeze a, a wallet. And of course, you also need to be able to freeze the tokens themselves for lockup periods and other things like that. The remaining four features that they uh, that Tron mentions is, of course, memos, aka adding metadata so that when there is an event such as a freeze, you can add that metadata to the blockchain as to why that occurred. You also want to be able to do dividends and payments, of course, on chain. And, and that's a very important step that they, they recognize. Of course, Ravencoin could potentially even be used for that. There wasn't much alluded to how that system is going to work yet. And the final two are voting and messaging, the voting system working through the token holders sending in vote tokens to represent uh, their vote. And of course, messaging for the, the token issuer to be able to send secure messages of information such as upcoming votes, dividends, and, and information that they want to share to all token holders on chain. Now, this whole process of tokenization on Ravencoin, Tron says, can be done in under a minute by an issuer using the Ravencoin QT wallet and simply 1,500 Ravencoins and 0.01 Raven for minor fees to create the unique restricted asset name that represents the security underneath it. You can also then include legal documentation and disclosure information relating to the security by putting a disclosure PDF into IPFS and include the IPFS hash when issuing the token. Cool. Of course, because you can write the rules, you'll then need to, of course, program in the, you know, the tags and tools and different accreditation requirements and the like for your security based on the exemption that you're using. Now, adding tags does cost one Ravencoin. And for those of you who are not familiar or don't know the recent price, it's roughly around two cents, a little over two cents per Ravencoin. So all in all, what we're talking about is you can launch an STO for essentially less than $50 and it's even less to maintain on an ongoing basis. This is truly a, a low, low cost specifically of what we're talking about of creating the smart contract and the tokenization that you'll be using in the marketplace. Uh, Tron, who by the way, also is a software engineer for Medici and Medici owns T0 uh, and has a lot of other blockchain portfolio companies. So, of course, we can expect that T0 is the likely first exchange to support Ravencoin-based STOs in the future. Uh, but, of course, there's no confirmation of that, uh, but, but it certainly, I think, is a safe assumption. So, with all of that, Kyle, and, and our listeners here, Ravencoin, which has been long sort of touted as a, a huge STO protocol, has officially announced that it has its roadmap, it knows what it's doing, uh, and that you can tokenize. I'm not sure if it's clear if you can tokenize today or, or in the near future, but what I can know or can expect is that 2020 will, will yield a lot of Ravencoin-based STOs. There's a strong developer and general community around the open source protocol, uh, and that's why I believe they deserve my company of the week. That low cost is incredible. $50 and, and seconds that you can tokenize your your assets. I mean, this is fascinating stuff and, and it really is exciting because you're just 
bringing down the friction. You're reducing the barriers to entry if you're an asset issuer. And it's incredibly exciting. It's cool to see that they're taking in those post-issuance features seriously because we've been saying this for a long time. And certainly now as we have a lot more real use cases that are actually looking to leverage dividend payments and potentially voting in the future, being conscious of that as you build your, your scalable solution is crucial. And it's incredibly exciting. I'm fully on board. Absolutely. I think that's a great point, uh, Kyle, that at the end of the day, it's extremely cheap to tokenize and Ravencoin clearly illustrates that. And that means that there's going to be an ever focus on, as you acknowledge, those supporting features, how you vote or do on-chain payments and the interfaces and the things and how easy it is to issue potentially a token are going to have much more of an effect than the actual costs of tokenization, which clearly is, is... very, very not prohibitable. It's, it's negligible. It's something that any company could do uh, if they wanted to at the end of the mm-hmm. day. So yeah. very, very cool. Congrats, Ravencoin. Congrats, Sotheby's, for being companies of the week. And now let's move on to the news section where I would like to share some big news with everybody. Uh, last week, Congress uh, had submitted a bill known as the Cryptocurrency Act of 2020. Now, we've been saying on the show repeatedly the need for governments around the world to legalize and define security tokens. We even covered it as our main topic on our sixth episode, and we acknowledged throughout the year in our end-of-the-year review that I believe something like 14 different jurisdictions have gone ahead and done and defined security tokens and typically also cryptocurrencies and virtual assets and the like uh, as, as well. Now... Finally, with this bill, it seems like the U.S. may be joining in. The bill splits digital assets into three different categories, cryptocurrencies, crypto commodities, and crypto securities, and specifically says that the CFTC will be responsible for regulating crypto commodities, the SEC responsible for crypto securities, and FinCEN responsible for cryptocurrencies. The bill will also require that these regulators make available to the public and keep a current list of all federal licenses, certifications, or registrations required to create or trade in digital assets. Finally, the bill also does define reserved back stable coins as linked to one specific currency in a one-to-one ratio on a fully collateralized account, as well as a sort of blanket stable coin definition for anything that is not a reserved back stable coin aka what they call a synthetic stable coin, which is, the, which is basically described as any asset or basket of currencies designed to stabilize a price using the blockchain. Now, in the case specifically, you know, crypto securities are defined as securities that rest on the blockchain or a distributed ledger. This is nothing new. This is nothing uh, that we didn't expect. It's just extremely necessary for this to be defined and enforceable by the SEC. A lot more people are a little bit more interested in that definition of this sort of first of, I've used, heard this term, Kyle, crypto commodities, <laughs> which the bill defines as economic goods or services that have A, full or substantial fungibility, B, that markets treat with no regard for who produced the goods or services, and C, of course, rests on a blockchain or a decentralized cryptographic ledger. All in all, major, major news. I'm in full support of this bill and in everything that it's trying to do. We had mentioned on the show the last couple episodes another bill that had been submitted to Congress, the Managed Stablecoins or Securities Act of 2019, which aimed to blanket, define stablecoins as securities, 
which this bill obviously opposes and redefines. And as we may have mentioned on the show before, I know personally, Kyle, I am not for the Managed Stable or Securities Act of 2019. And again, I very strongly support this new bill. I think this is something that the U.S. needs to do uh, and very quickly. What are your thoughts? I love it. I'm super excited. And uh, this is something that that I've been talking a lot with, with a lot of different people on Twitter over the last week or two. We've been getting into some great discussions, but I think that the, the one piece that I'd like to re-highlight that you mentioned, Herwig, is, is that the importance of why defining crypto securities is so important for us in our industry. And so, as you had mentioned, they define that as any debt, equity, or derivative instrument that rests on a blockchain or decentralized ledger. And so, it also specifically notes that the KYC AML requirements and additions to the other standards that need to be met for issuance. And the key here is that with a security token definition, whatever you want to call it, whether it's security token or crypto security or how you want to go along those lines, many firms will see the roadblocks for their licenses reduced or cleared. And, and this is important because we've seen a lot of broker-dealer applications. We've seen many investment advisory licenses, all kinds of, of licenses that are required for traditional financial transactions and for traditional financial services that allow firms to take liability for the issuers on behalf of of all of these issuers that are just looking to sell either their their security, whether it's debt or equity or something else. And so without those proper financial platforms and and those licenses to be able to have those pieces in place, we can't have a, a sustainable financial industry that really supports the the actual assets. The infrastructure is so key and crucial in any financial industry. And so the hope is that with some of these definitions, it'll clear up some of these roadblocks. Because as I mentioned, some of the some of the issues are just on the fact that a lot of these regulatory bodies don't know exactly how to approve or how to evaluate crypto or security token firms just because they're not totally clear on what that means, what they're allowed to do, what the implications might be. So having definitions that allow regulatory bodies to properly evaluate and compare traditional firms with some of these newer fintech firms is crucial for the movement of our industry and which is why it's so exciting that we have a definition, right? The definition itself just sounds like, okay, great, they've, they've defined it. But really the implications of that are everything else building on top of that definition that we don't currently have clarity on. I, I think that's a very good summary, you know, of, of really episode six of why it's so important to define, you know, at the end of the day, Without that lack of legal clarity, the existing markets, the investments, the issuers and the like simply cannot evolve to the future of security tokens until that legal clarity is there, even though the technology already exists. And so Absolutely. with that, hopefully you know, we're going to see some movement with that in early 2020 because I believe Congress is officially on break. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so again, mm-hmm. glad that we snuck that in at the end of the year here. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's just continuing the discourse. This might take a while and it may take time before everyone can find something that we can all agree on, but at least beginning that discourse, beginning those conversations is, is important and it's, it's exciting and, and very positive to see that conversations are heading in that direction. Yeah, no longer I think people can say the U.S. is lagging behind, if you will. Right. SEC uh, bans SIEOs, question mark. Well, this was a great article submitted by community member Jay Darenthal on the topic of IEOs. The article itself was written by Bernard Lund, who is the CEO of the Daily Fintech publication. 
and he reviews in depth how the SEC might look at IEOs and primary direct listings. The article is inspired by the SEC's decision this month, earlier this month, to reject a proposal by the New York Stock Exchange, which the proposal's goal was to update the New York Stock Exchange rules to allow for direct primary listings. Now, the reaction by the finance and legal community has been quick to say to not to judge the SEC on this decision, uh, specifically because they are likely still evaluating the potential of the concept as opposed to just dismissing it right away. But let me give you some context. Please. Currently, the IPO on-ramp is pretty much controlled by the investment banks who make huge fees off of pricing and structuring the IPO, helping with the roadshow and marketing the offering, as well as other services. Companies like Spotify made waves by offering a direct listing of its existing shares. But I need to note the nuance between a primary direct listing, which involves the issuance of new shares, versus a secondary direct listing, which is a sale of existing shares. Now, Okay, so let's think about that really quick. So primary direct listing is not allowed. Correct. And the secondary direct, direct listing has been done before by companies like Spotify where they're selling existing shares. Correct. Okay. You nailed it. And in this case, of course, with a direct listing, one of the big benefits is that there are no lockup periods. So this is seen as a great liquidity event for existing shareholders and early investors. Now, there are criticisms, of course, because if you don't have a major household name like, say, Spotify, it certainly will become a bigger marketing challenge to get the word out about your direct secondary listing. Now, Bernard suggests in his article that this response and the future comments on it by the SEC could also have an impact on the STO world, as he anticipates we will also see many direct listings in the private markets in the form of STOs. We've heard rumblings of that already. Exactly. But it's worth noting that Bernard also acknowledges that if you don't have a household name, you'll still likely enlist the aid of brokers and underwriters. But the structure of these offerings, whether they're public or private, are essentially very similar and therefore, any SEC judgment on the public markets could affect future STOs, specifically if they do direct listings via ATS-based exchanges and the like, which really is unprecedented at this time in private capital market history. So definitely a great article worth checking out if you're, you're curious on the thought. It does not have any direct implication on security tokens today. It's just food for thought. Next up, I want to move into our updates section, starting off uh, with a new initiative or a new move by the Swish International Exchange, which has been touting for since 2018 now the launch of the SDX or the Swish Digital Exchange, primarily focused to support security tokens and digital assets. And we know already in the past that the firm has partnered with Swisscom, Sign and Bank, Custodigit for things like infrastructure, custody, and other banking services. But most recently, SIX has announced the acquisition of a stake in the tokenization provider known as Dwara. The company intends to utilize the best protocols from each platform in the creation of the SDX exchange to allow investors and businesses to plan, issue, trade, and manage their security tokens from one easy-to-understand interface. The move shows us that the Swiss International Exchange does not plan to develop their own issuance platform, at least for now. And since they are still focused on the launch of the platform itself, they will likely exclusively support Dwar to start, especially because they now have a vested interest. So, And especially because there is no additional mention of the support of other uh, protocols 
uh, or expected support. So at the same time, we've been eagerly anticipating watching the, the SDX launch, which is now expected to be sometime in 2020, uh, as the company has been working on it for, for two years now. Interesting. Good move. Good to see that they're still active in the space and, and uh, working quickly towards launch. Next up, we have GMO Internet, which you can call the GoDaddy of Japan, announcing plans to launch a yen-based stablecoin in 2020. Companies officials stated that their primary use will be to facilitate borderless trading, payments, and remittance. In turn, the token will help further promote and enhance market liquidity. Most importantly, the token will function as a means to stabilize price volatility within the space, they say. The company is currently waiting for regulatory approval, and GMO Internet actually created their own blockchain called GN, which, of course, we expect the stablecoin to be issued on. We don't know much more. The, the GoDaddy equivalent that they offer Z.com, where you can register domains and do web hosting and all other sorts of functions, and that's where we expect the promotion of their stablecoin will occur. We'll, of course, be looking out around Q2 for that stablecoin. It is, as far as I know, the first yen-pegged stablecoin that I know of. Nice. Next up, we have BlockQuake, which is an aspiring STO exchange in the U.S., recently announcing the successful launch of its beta platform, marking an important milestone for the company. They hope that to go live in 2020, but they do still lack regulatory approval. They are likely one of the many companies that you had mentioned, Kyle, earlier that are sort of stuck in a mm -hmm. regulatory limbo. Yeah. But they did, you know, mention that they are expecting and they have applied for multiple licenses, including, of course, their broker-dealer license, an ATS license to go with it, commodity futures trading commissions registrations, and its New York State bit license. With mm. these licenses, BlockQuake will be able to service the securities markets, they say, with confidence and in complete compliance. The company also claims to be able to handle 10 million transactions per second, wow. saying that those will draw in a lot of high-frequency traders to the platform. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> naturally. Uh, it's always exciting to see more and more exchanges, Kyle, ready to go live in 2020. For those of you who are new to the show, we do have an active list we maintain uh, that you can find at our blog with over 50 different exchanges all around the world intending to support security tokens, expecting to go live mostly uh, all around 2020. So good luck to BlockQuake, and hopefully we'll, we'll see more news in, in 2020 for them. Definitely. We also have another uh, official STO platform. This one is called Stratus, which for those of the crypto world may have be familiar with the name. It's a UK-based enterprise blockchain technology company. And specifically, they did an, an STO, or an ICO actually, as early as 2016, and with the intention of also becoming sort of an ICO platform issuance uh, provider. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Chris True, Stratus CEO, said with their announcement that uh, they can support security tokens, that we are, quote, delighted to launch our STO platform, one of the key milestones of our 2019 development roadmap. The SDO platform builds on the functionality of the Stratus ICO platform with the addition of several new features that satisfy the rigorous regulatory requirements needed to conduct SDOs. Our SDO platform is highly secure, flexible, and scalable, making it easy for businesses of any size to raise money through the tokenization of their assets. So yet again, another issuance platform, this time based out of the UK, with a little history. Uh, in this case, it's an example of an ICO platform but I would say successfully pivoting to also support and launch STOs. Great news. 
we'll, we'll be sure to look out for any uh, new announcements and uh, STOs that come out of the Stratus platform. The Stratosphere, would you say? <laughs> you'll, you'll have to coin that one and sell that to them, Kyle. I don't think I'm that clever. <laughs> <laughs> Last piece of updates here. We, ha- we do have an announcement from Tokensoft saying that they have hired a chief legal officer, Alex C. Levine. Alex's regulatory and blockchain experience actually spans nearly two decades. He has held high-level positions in a myriad of traditional financial firms and regulatory agencies, specifically being a senior legal and compliance officer with the SEC, the CFTC, and the Options Clearing Corporation, or the OCC. Wow. You know, he sounds like a strong addition to the team. The, the announcement mentioned Alex is also excited for the space, uh, which is, to me, clear continued validation for security Absolutely. token technology by, you know, another industry vet who's actually a lawyer, no less. So great addition. Congratulations to Tokensoft and Alex, and we wish you guys the best of luck. Totally. Finally, we do have a little bit of a couple of opinion articles for you guys Specifically, starting off with uh, an op-ed on CoinDesk by Emma Channing, the CEO of Satis Group. Who uh, Satis Group is also a FINRA licensed investment bank in the security token space. Not to be confused with Stratus. No, <laughs> Satis in this case. And specifically, she covers in her article some of the milestones of 2019, also some of the reasons why 2019 wasn't really destined to be the, the year of the security token. You know, of course, go check it out if you want to see her full perspective. We also have a new article series on securities.io, touring the world, picking a company uh, of each region to sort of represent what's going on. In this case, Africa's edition is represented by Merge, the seashells-based company uh, that is an exchange that they actually successfully hit their soft cap for their own STO, and it's actually still open for participation. But specifically, this exchange is based in Seychelles, which is off the east coast of Africa. Asia's edition is actually not yet live, but is supposed to be represented by InvestaX. InvestaX is an end-to-end solution for digital securities, uh, capital raising and management of secondary trading of alternative investments, with a, also with a license from the Monetary Authority of Singapore to conduct its surface, a key licensing requirement in order to, to function as an exchange. And it's also partnered with Securitize for issuance. I'm looking forward to that article when it's released, I'm sure, in the near future. And Europe is also then represented by Fintelum. Fintelum is an Estonian-based company which launched in 2018. The company looks to make full use of its licensure obtained through the Estonian Financial Intelligence Unit in order to bring its clients a comprehensive platform. North America is represented by Vertalo. The interview is, of course, with the outspoken CEO, Dave Hendricks. The company is known for having secured almost $3 million in funding and having a full live issuance platform available, showing off demos at conferences and webinars for the past few months now. And the fifth article series is not actually Australia, but the UK, represented by Smartlands, which you may recall was the issuance partner for Sotheby's, as well as also for many other major deals in the region. Smartlands itself has a planned STO in the works. The articles do a great job giving insights to the specific challenges and progress of the various regions for the digital securities industries there. Last but not least, we also have China issuing bonds uh, as an op-ed on Cointelegraph, showing us what's next to come. The article, I think, does a great job highlighting both the history of China and uh, and its blockchain association, as well as where it's headed, specifically summarizing the blackout, if you will, of 2017 around ICOs and banning 
mostly everything related to blockchain, was largely actually due to issues of control, not necessarily the ideology and potential of blockchain. That much is clear now that China has announced and finished 2019 with a very aggressive push. I think something like 500 blockchain projects announced, including across all industries, including finance, which uh, actually a, a couple episodes ago, you may remember that we announced that China has issued almost $3 billion US dollars worth of a bond completely on the blockchain and will be managed going forward on their exclusive self-built platform. So I, I think without a doubt, this is a sign that not only the true value of blockchain for securities is there, but that China intends to move forward with their own technology stacks to create an STO ecosystem, which the government actually already hinted at building towards in 2020 as they prove some of these pilot use cases. Definitely check out the full article if you're interested in China's digital security ecosystem. For those of you who are new listeners, all of the articles that we discuss on the show, you can find them at stomarket.com news. And you can, of course, submit your own content and articles that you come across if it's not already been submitted and engage with fellow community members. Please join us in doing so. That's it. That's my news section. Great job, Erwin. That was quite a rundown. It also is important to note, you also can find all of the links in the description of wherever you're listening. We've got a lot of listeners on YouTube, but we have even more to listen via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere else that you find it. And in all of those all of those different mediums, you can find all the links to every every article we post, as well as our, our weekly blog post via our Medium channel. Should all be an easy click away. And you can find it on Twitter. I've got S- the STO show on Twitter. However you want to do it, you're going to find our links. But moving into new STOs, unfortunately, we only have one. It was a, it was a light news week for the security token offerings themselves, maybe because it's, it's the holiday season and, and not quite as much not happens. Not uncommon, right? But yeah, exactly. But, you know, t- January, I'm, I'm really looking forward. We've got some big announcements coming up. But the, the one that I, I don't want to leave, it, we can't be ignored, is Likio. L-I-Q-I-O Exchange is doing a security token offering. This is a pretty familiar format if you've heard the show before. But Likio is a crypto exchange that, that has trading pairs for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin. And I believe there's maybe one or two more as well. Um, but Likio is conducting their own security token. The sale did begun, uh, or has begun rather. It, it was started on December 21st, and it will run through February 21st of 2020. So it's it's uh, it's currently going on, and the structure, the terms here are, are that it's based off of monthly dividends that you're going to get as a token holder. That is based on 50% of their exchange transaction fees across that monthly period. And so their soft cap is 550,000 US dollars up to about 1.8 million US dollars with a percentage of additional bonus tokens based off of the larger volumes of, of purchase. So definitely take a look at that. And the tokens can be purchased with Bitcoin or Ethereum. So if you're interested, there, there maybe is more information on their site. Maybe if you're you know, serious about an investor, you can find some, some more investor deal information. Um, you can find that on Likio, L-I-Q-I-O dot C-O, Likio dot C-O. Super cool. Always exciting to see a crypto exchange leverage an STO instead of an ICO. Mm-hmm. You know, again, properly mm-hmm. doing it the, the right way. And I, I think... Because of that component, you are able to kind of tag in and address the crypto world, which has, has also started to kind of look for STOs. But of course, 
You'll be very familiar with how a cryptocurrency exchange operates and, and how to sort of measure their value. So I'm excited to see how this one ends up doing. Totally, totally. We do have some interesting news from our market update, from our secondary market trading. This is, a, this is always a great segment. And boy, do we have some drama for you today. So we've got some huge news across the secondary market. But as always, it is important to remember, alongside the news, you can find all of the secondary data on stlmarket.com. That's where it's sourced. You go on there and you can find the live trading data, volumes, historical pricing, charts, all that stuff you want to check out. Go look. It's updated daily. But first off, we always start with T0. It's our largest market cap coin and seems to be the only one with serious consistent volume on a day-to-day -day basis. And today was no different. T0 has had a lower, I'd say, average volume over the last maybe two weeks with, with anywhere from two to $3,000 in trading volume. Probably just, again, as we said, because of the holidays. But man, Monday was a serious day for T0 with over $70,000 in 24-hour trading volume. And the price is actually up. It's, it's holding in that 80 to 90 cents range from its lows of around 65 cents in September, November. So it's up a couple cents. I think it closed around 84 cents today. And uh, $70,000 in 24-hour trading volume today is, is very interesting. It's the highest that I really can recall seeing. I guess that you can go through the historical charts and see for yourself, but that's, that's the most that I've seen in a long time. We also don't stop there. On maybe less positive news, Lottery.com made some serious headlines on Christmas Eve as it began a massive dumping of their tokens with, with over 20,000, or I guess exactly 20,000 shares sold that crashed the price from its 64 cent range to 10 cents. And this transaction was one chunk suggesting that there was a, a large investor that was grown tired of the, the lack of movement and decided to liquidate. And it actually hasn't seen any action since. So suggesting that even at the 85% discount that it's currently looking at, there still isn't much appetite for one of the very first security tokens in the space, which is a shame. We'll have to see how they respond in 2020. So yeah, their market cap now sits at around $4 million four million US dollars from you know from that twenty million dollar range or more that they were at before. It's now third of five sorted by market cap on open finance, the exchange it sits on, um, which levels out the global market cap to around fifty million. I think it's about fifty one million US dollars on on as of Monday, December 30th, closed markets. So going into 2020 T0 still looks like it's hanging in there. There still does seem to be some investor interest, but unfortunately, OFN has not had the strongest couple of months in terms of their token volumes. Wow, definitely a reckoning, if you will, <laughs> uh, for, for a token there. But we, I do want to acknowledge the fact that although 50 million sounds like an incredibly small number, we are talking about only six different tokens that are trading across two exchanges we expect this number to exponentially explode in 2020, and uh, as, uh, along with it, of course, the, the entire market cap. But definitely fascinating to see how some of the, really all of the first uh, security tokens to be issued have not necessarily been trading uh, positively since their uh, secondary listing. Yeah, it's not great news, unfortunately, for I think that... that T0 is in the best spot. I've said it once, if I've said it a million times, that at least with T0, I think that a lot of the hope is that once they can actually list more tokens, then you're going to be exposed to a lot of those transaction fees and, and obviously their, their network will be worth more. 
So there's still hope there that at least with T0, they can they can add more tokens. They've got Ravencoin moving forward. They are, it does seem like they're working with other firms and they're obviously backed by Overstock. But unfortunately with the other ones, it really doesn't seem like there's a lot of interest for what they sold originally, which, which doesn't paint the, the best picture for those tokens specifically moving into 2020. But as you, if you if you didn't listen to the last episode, episode 23, we recapped everything that happened in 2019 and there were some serious, serious institutional security token offering movement in terms of live tokens that will be hitting exchanges in both the institutional space and both the private space. You're seeing a lot of tokens that have sold out that have been very successful in their primary offerings that are now in the lockup period before they get to see the secondary markets. So in 2020, you're going to see a lot of those lockup periods ending and a lot of these higher quality or at least deemed from the investors themselves, higher appetite tokens that will be hitting exchanges and will have a little bit, you know, maybe a more sustainable market moving forward. That's not only a hope, but also an expectation. Absolutely. But without further ado, it's time for our main topic. And the main topic this week is what you need to know about the SEC and its potential accredited investor definition change. And so last week, the SEC dropped a bombshell on everyone in the financial industries by announcing a newly proposed change to the vaunted accredited investor definition. And this is something that we've been talking about for a while. Everyone in security tokens has been talking for a while, but this affects not just security tokens, but many different industries and in, in subsets of, of, of finance. And so as a reminder, the accredited investor is defined as a natural person, so a per, somebody, an investor or a person who has an income of $200,000 across two years of you know, just two years in a row, and a reasonable expectation to continue earning at least that, or $300,000 if you're conjoining with your spouse. Or if you aren't necessarily making income, if you have a net worth of more than a million dollars that does not include your primary home or residence, which is what most Americans have their wealth tied to, but if you have a million on top of your primary residence, that also means you're an accredited investor. And as of 2016, estimates put that number of individuals that qualify for an investor or an accredited investor to be around 12 million Americans or roughly 10% of all households in America. And so the report suggested a pool of about 125 million U.S. households. And so according to SEC Chairman Jay Clayton in the recent press release, he said, quote, the current test for individual accredited investor status takes a binary approach to who does and who does not qualify based only on a person's income or net worth. Modernization of this approach is long overdue. The proposal would add additional means for individuals to qualify to participate in our private capital markets based on established, clear measures of financial sophistication. I am also pleased that the proposal specifically recognizes that certain organizations, such as tribal governments, should not be restricted from participating in our private capital markets. And this is an awesome quote. If you remember from, from some of the earliest episodes of, of the STO show, Herwig and I conducted a large draft and, and submitted a ton of feedback to the SEC regarding investor accreditation rules and many other private security exemption regulations and how those things can be approved. And we certainly were not the only ones. So many different people have, have acknowledged the fact that deciding whether somebody can invest in a private security only based off of how much money they have to lose 
seems relatively antiquated and, and not just. It doesn't seem right. It, it, there should be ways to prove your financial sophistication to allow you to invest in these things without necessarily requiring you to have a certain amount of money. The, the money factor might be a nice way to just kind of blanket treatment everybody, but at some point, it should. a lot of people feel that it should be expanded to at least some level of sophistication, that if you are you know, deemed to be smart enough or, or qualified intellectually in some way, that should be enough to allow you to, to invest as well. And, and many people have suggested that the fact that there's only opportunities for the wealthy to make these investments actually kind of furthers that class divide and hurts the wealth distribution in America because there's no way for somebody to prove that they are, are capable of making proper investments. And so it's exciting. And so let's dig into to some of these proposed inclusions or, or changes. Now, I will have to note that they are pretty general and there it's not does not specifically include everything that that likely will, will move forward with this and they are not very specific about about many of these things. But uh, we've got a couple bullet points of important things to talk about. The first one being that a person with a certain professional certification and designation, including a Series 7, 65, or 82 license, as well as other credentials issued by an accredited educational institution, should be accredited investors. And so in this one, it's, it's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of, you know, Series 7 or 65 or 82 are investment banker licenses. There's other, you know, credentials from an accredited educational institution, which we're not exactly sure what that could include, but but suggestions might be maybe if you are a doctor or if you pass the bar or if you've got some kind of higher level graduate degree, things like that could potentially a PhD maybe are, are, are um, credentials that would be included in here that, again, suggests that you've got some level of higher education and, and are capable of making your own investment decisions regardless of how much money you necessarily have. Moving on, the second one is a, quote, knowledgeable employee of a fund with respect to investments in a private fund. And so I interpreted this as potentially people that are working on deals day in and day out that, that understand the terms of private deals and private investments that certainly show that they are qualified because they're the ones that are managing these funds for institutions. If you're qualified to manage these funds for institutions, maybe that you, you should be qualified to make those investments on your personal behalf as well. But again, uh, that one's maybe up to more interpretation. Herwig, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I just want to give some examples maybe such as a financial analyst or someone who is uh, doing the, the financial structuring of deals and the like. I think individuals like that, even the managing director themselves, you know, they can invest as the entity, but they can't invest themselves potentially as accredited investors unless they qualify under the original definition. Right, exactly. So if you're working closely in a fund or alongside deals, the you know the SEC is suggesting that that you may be qualified and, and should be qualified to make your own personal investment that, definitions. Kyle. You can be a managing director of a private fund, 10, 20, 50, 100 million dollars. But if you yourself do not make more than $200,000 a year or have a million dollars in net worth, you as an individual are not an accredited investor. The goal of exactly the wording here is to change that. It's actually pretty relevant. One of the, the commissioners that, that voted in favor of expanding this definition, I believe it was Roisman, but I'm not exactly sure. One of them did specifically note that they themselves were not an accredited investor based off of the current regulation, which 
should not make very much sense. If you're a commissioner of the SEC, you'd think Jeez. that person would have, have you know, qualified to, to be able to make private investments. But again, solely according, according to the assets themselves, one of the main deciding commissioners is himself not even qualified to make these investment decisions. So exactly, um, exactly to their point. And then finally, the, the third one that, that we found notable to discuss was, was limited liability companies, registered investment advisors, and rural business investment companies, provided that they meet certain criteria that still need to be properly defined. And so, again, registered investment advisor is a license that you can get. You'd think if you were a registered investment advisor, you probably have the capacity to advise yourself on your own investments, you would right? Think, Kyle. So, so again, they need to specify and include more of what these criteria that need to be defined, really explore those in more detail. But I love where their head's at here because there they're really should be you know, some level of sophistication that you could prove in different ways that don't necessarily need a new test. And you don't need an accreditor investor test. But if you're a registered investment advisor, you'd think that that, that should mean that if you're approved to do that and manage other people's funds, you, you, should be able, you should be qualified to manage your own as well. So I love where the SEC is headed here. Of the five commissioners that vote on these changes, uh, three voted in favor, two voted against. The, the three in favor were the Republican commissioners Clayton, which is the, the chairman, as well as Pierce and Boisman. And, and the two Democratic commissioners, Jackson and Lee, voted in opposition, citing that the purported rule changes were, quote, overly inclusive. So um, it seems that the majority rules in this case, and uh, the SEC is actually currently accepting feedback on these changes. So I have no doubt Herwig and I will put something together and submit our feedback as well. But in fact, this change may be as a result of those who joined us in our feedback to the SEC's request to harmonize capital markets. Kyle and I led a campaign bringing together as many individuals who participate in private capital markets to support one of our suggestions, which was, of course, to expand the accredited investor definition. So regardless of whether it was us, there were many others who submitted feedback with very similar uh, uh, phrasing. And at the end of the day, this was something that has been on the radar for a long time. So it is exciting to see finally a change happen. We have to keep in mind that largely other than updating and accounting for um, inflation, the definition of accredited investors has not changed for roughly 80 years since it was first created. So why is all of this really so important? Why are we covering it on the show? Well, really, as a U.S. citizen, the primary way to participate in a private offering is through Reg D, which represents essentially 99% of all private placements. Unfortunately, in order to participate in these offerings, you need to be an accredited investor, which is why, as you pointed out, Kyle, many see this as a exclusive market for the wealthy because literally the test to qualify is essentially defining you as wealthy, someone who is in the top 10% of Americans. Now, a law known as the Jobs Act was passed in 2012, which enabled more ways for non-accredited investors to participate in private offerings, but unfortunately their usage pales in comparison with just a few hundred offerings combined over the last few years of these for these non-accredited offerings compared to 35,000 plus 
Reg D offerings on a yearly basis. <laughs> so you can imagine that still it is largely controlled by the Reg D markets. Mm -hmm. Now the new definition would obviously enable a lot more people to qualify as accredited and not to do so by some sort of a wealth test, but actually a more knowledge or experience based test. It's estimated that there are roughly 600,000 FINRA members, you know, that typically hold one of those licenses that can now qualify. There are roughly 32,000 private funds in the U.S. If on average 10 people working for those funds would now qualify, there's another 320,000 individuals. We're now starting to approach nearly a million more people that will now qualify. There's another 13,000 RAs that would get added. And of course, the proposal doesn't specifically define what other accreditations or certifications should qualify and what an LLC needs to meet in order to qualify as well, which potentially could be several more million people that end up qualifying either as persons or entities in order to be accredited, which is, of course, a massive change. We're now talking north of 10 to 20 percent in additional people that now qualify, which for sure, if private markets are largely run by this investor class, naturally, one would expect that the private capital markets will grow even more robust and efficient. And of course, this would also potentially have an impact on the public markets as a result. And therefore, I think that's why you're also seeing some pushback regarding the potential, you know, inclusivity. You know, if you start to go and say doctors now qualify, you're talking about tons of more people that perhaps some of those commissioners feel certain do not qualify to invest. Of course, we all recommend that you go to the SEC website and suggest your own feedback to them about who should qualify. Uh, and uh, this is certainly not something that we're going to decide or, or have any influence on directly. It needs to be heard from everybody in the, in the space. And we also should go into why this is also very important for them to specifically clarify who qualifies as accredited investors, specifically because STOs primarily use Reg D 506C, which allows your offering to be advertised and solicited, but in exchange requires that the issuer verify the accredited investor status of each participating investor. There are, of course, companies like InvestReady, which, by the way, I am a founder of, which started in 2013 to help provide accreditation software for issuers and platforms to meet this new SEC requirement as of 2013. And, of course, the, you know, because you need to be able to certify this, you need things like, okay, a Series 7, which a license number can be checked on FINRA. If there is ambiguity in terms of how you could qualify, this could be leaving an open room or a loophole for people to abuse the law and qualify as accredited, which is something the SEC is specifically trying to avoid as they try to broaden the definition properly. So this is really a matter, I think, and, and I think it, it's even clear that the two commissioners who oppose it aren't necessarily opposed to expanding the definition. Right. It's just going to come down to specifically who now should qualify in what seems to be definitely a more new kind of test, a more experience or credentials-based test as opposed to just simply by net worth or income. Obviously, at the end of the day, the, the logic is pretty simple for the potential of this change. More investors qualifying means more investments and more value creation. More potential investments, investors means a larger buyer pool, which potentially means, of course, more uh, efficient private markets and potential chance for liquidity. So overall, Kyle, I, I'm very excited 
not just for my own company, which will now potentially have a, a larger user base, but I'm excited for the industry and for private capital markets, which have been yearning for a change like this for decades now. Absolutely. I think you summarized it perfectly. It's incredibly exciting. We're going to be opening it not only to more accredited investors, but I certainly am under the belief that these specific accredited investors likely are more active than your average accredited investor just across any industry, which I think is also great for capital markets. So even if it's only a million people, it, you're talking a million of maybe some of the most active accredited investors, which, which the, the impact on those markets could be much larger than even just the amount of accredited investors themselves. And as I mentioned before, and as I'm sure you agree with me, I, I just think that this is right for fair capital markets to have the ability for those that are interested in private investments in, in making their, you know, in, in participating in this space to not be held back by, by solely these, these uh, wealth locks that, that are currently in fact, in, in our suggestion that we gave to, to the SEC regarding harmonization, we even included non-accredited investors being able to qualify based on passing certain tests and the like. So I would say that Kyle and I are, are definitely more liberal and open-minded to, to when it comes to who should qualify. Of course, it's going to be the SEC that ultimately change, makes the changes. So again, we'll, we'll be sure to leave the link Baby in the steps. description. You know, one, one step at a time, feedback. right? Exactly. Give us feedback. We'll let you know. We'll keep you updated as, as we uh, you know prepare what we would like to say. And thank you again, everybody who participated in the last one. We had almost 50 people that co-signed alongside with us with many of the, the top industry leaders. We really appreciate that. And, and I'm pretty confident to say that, that we at least had some positive impact. Hopefully, they, they read ours and, and, and many of the other submissions we saw from, from members of the community. And all of us together are working towards making better capital markets. That's it, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this year's final episode. We'll be back next week in 2020 with predictions for the year. And, of course, I'm Herwick Konings. I want to thank you all for listening. Talk to you next year. Bye.